0: Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Jennifer Egan, the author of Manhattan Beach and five previous books of fiction. A Visit from the Goon Squad won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Granta, McSweeney's, and The New York Times Magazine. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you.
1: And congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much.
0: How's uh, how's everything going? How's the new book? How's uh, walking around living your life? Uh, it's
1: good. I mean, I'm excited because Manhattan Beach was chosen as a citywide read for New York, which is really thrilling to me because New York is my adopted home and uh, really kind of directly inspired the book. Uh, so I feel excited to, uh, to have so many New Yorkers reading it.
0: That is uh, so great. I have never written a book about a city where the city later said thank you. <laughs> um, we're all going to read it now. Like, that's just kind of lovely. It is really, it, it is a
1: dreamy happiness, I have to say.
0: Oh, well, that's very excited, exciting, even. Um, and I think dreamy happiness should be the tone that we take with all of these letters.
1: We're going to provide dreamy happiness, hopefully.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be immediately available to all of the people asking questions, but that's going to be the goal, for me at least. That sounds good to me. Awesome. Well, our first, uh, our first letter is not starting in a position of dreamy happiness. Our first letter is starting in a position of alienation and profound distress at work. So we're going to get started with a tricky one. The subject line is just what to expect from bosses. Dear Prudence, I'm having some problems at work. Actually, a lot of problems. I work with only two other women, one of whom is my superior. And every day I walk in dreading what I will apparently fail at today and leave feeling awful. I go home and cry at least three times a week. I feel as though they both regularly throw me under the bus in order to make themselves look better to the boss. They insult me, they call me incompetent, have gone digging through my trash. It just never stops. I would approach the boss about their actions, but he loves them too. He even officiated one of their weddings earlier this year. This is my first full-time job after college, and I have no idea how to approach this when it seems like the deck is stacked against me. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, this one... Put me in mind of a couple of my first post-college jobs, and I did not enjoy revisiting that experience. Yeah,
1: I, I also felt that. I mean, I yes, I certainly know the feeling of having had an abusive boss. And that's why, in a way, my first reaction to this was that I think there are lots of things to be done here. But it seems to me that one of them is
0: just to quietly begin looking for another job. Right. If for no other reason than to have a bit of an escape valve throughout the week, right? Just to have a sense of I'm not trapped here.
1: Exactly. I mean, I just it may just be that there are too many factors at play here to unlock into a more uh, neutral and comfortable situation. Although that said, I, I did think that, you know, one one thing to do would be to start documenting these various uh, encroachments and and um, and you know mal- incidents of maltreatment in a very orderly way. You know date, uh, incident, uh, perpetrator, etc. And then having done that for a couple of weeks, to consider in a very calm and rational way, having having uh, guaranteed confidentiality, to actually go to the boss and present this material.
0: Right. I think it's always going to be easier to say uh, something like, you know, on the third, she went through my trash. Um, On the fourth, someone called me an idiot. Uh, These things make it difficult for me to get my work done on time. Um, To have those specific things that you can point to um, as opposed to I feel this way all of the time. Um, I cry regularly, which, again, is meaningful and important. But given that you're already anxious that the boss in question is just going to side with his friends automatically. Um, It can sometimes be really helpful to point out specific things that when he hears them um, will hopefully be jarring and surprising. And if he has a very different impression of these other two
1: employees... That what this person has to do is somehow overcome that preconception. And so my fear is that without that documentation and the very calm and sane presentation, one danger is that the boss just thinks this person is overwrought. I actually can't tell if this is a a man or a woman, but this person is overwrought.
0: They work with two other women, so I I two other women. Okay,
1: so she's so even worse. Then then there's a gender stereotype that may come into play. She's overwrought. She's imagining things. She's paranoid. I mean, who knows? People will go a long way to maintain what they think is what the, the impressions they already have of other people, including questioning someone who throws a different light onto those impressions. So again, the more. Calm and sort of um, low key, and 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 kind of documented. The better, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, you just said a word there. I actually. Yeah. Woo. Uh, that is absolutely true, and and I think you're right too. Which is hard because one of the things that can be really difficult is if you are already this level of like feeling distressed and, and, and on the verge of tears about it, it can be a lot harder to say, okay, I have to get through this meeting without crying. Um, because as soon as that becomes your goal, all your face wants to do is produce tears. Um, so I think when you do have this meeting to kind of prepare yourself as best you can beforehand, um, you know, get your crying out earlier in the day, if you can, obviously you can't perfectly control your body and make it not cry. Um, But as much as you can rehearse it, maybe practice on a couple of friends beforehand until you can kind of get through, here are the main issues as I see them. Um, Here are the incidents that I have documented until you can get through that while maintaining your composure. That's going to go a long way towards hopefully helping you get heard. That is so true. I mean, I actually think rehearsing
1: and practicing with friends is such a good idea. I mean, speaking as someone who had very serious performance anxiety for many, many years It's, you know, anything that can be done to kind of shore up one's performance because it is a performance. This is a really scary thing to go behind the backs of two people, you know, who seem to really not have her best interest in mind to try to appeal to a person who seems to really like and trust those people. And this is someone right out of college. I mean, it's a lot to ask. I would be nervous to do it now as a 55 year old woman. So the more she can rehearse, the better.
0: Yeah. And it is hard. I, I, it's I, it's been a while since this happened. But I did um, once cry when I was in a meeting with my boss. And one of the things that was just so difficult was once it started, I just felt so embarrassed um, that I could not stop crying. Um, and I wanted so badly to just, like, hit the reset button and respawn myself and walk in again um, as a new person. Um And it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult when you're crying at work, um, and you're aware that other people feel uncomfortable, um, and that's a hard position to be in. So, I I I think
1: one other um, one other thing that's really good about the documentation is that it has a sort of legal tinge to it, which is not a bad thing to do. That's just a, a subtle cord to strike in this conversation because I'm not sure what sort of recourse an employee has who goes to her boss with you know documentation of abuses by other employees but there may be some recourse and simply taking a more sort of calm metric approach to all of it I think raises the specter of a person who's thinking about other steps they might take, which is which is really not a bad thing and and actually quite appropriate if, if this really is an abusive situation.
0: Right, right. And, you know, unfortunately, there's often so many ways in which it's perfectly legal for for bosses to mistreat employees. But I think you're right. Just even to give the indication of this has reached a level where it is not possible for me to kind of have a measured conversation with these coworkers slash supervisors, and they modify their behavior, um, this is a pattern um, that's really serious and that's going unchecked. Um, And in order for me to be able to do my job, I need your help in communicating to them um, how they can uh, speak to other employees to get different um, results uh, and how they can't. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I think prepare yourself for that as best you can. Also look for work elsewhere. I felt that implicit in this letter was the sort of um, uh, because it's my first job out of college. Uh, she maybe feels reluctant to look for another job because she's afraid it will look bad not to have been there a longer time. And then maybe also an implicit fear of is this just how workplaces are a lot of the time? Like, should I just resign myself to being treated like this at a lot of jobs? Um, and I would just say, you know, generally speaking, it's not great to have like multiple, multiple, very brief um uh, tenures at different companies um, over the course of your career, it is not going to hold you back over a lifetime to have spent one job where you were only there for six months. Um, and the other one is no, it is not. It is not OK or or something that you can just expect from most workplaces that you will be treated like this.
1: No, I mean, going through the trash is is pretty serious. I mean, that's really strange. I mean, and and I would also be curious to know how she exactly knows that. Um, well, I so wonder again, if they just
0: cop to it if they're like, yeah, I went through your trash.
1: Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, that just seems really um, clearly they are very threatened by her. So mm-hmm. I guess another thing to to consider would be that she may have more more power or more presence than she's giving herself credit for, because if she were a non-entity, they would not be doing these things. There's there's something about her that has them nervous. Maybe she's really capable uh, has a huge amount to offer, and they feel insecure for their own reasons. But it's another reason to feel emboldened with with documentation, and, and hopefully in the right state of mind to, to walk in and very calmly present the evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I do think, you know, take the record write that down that does not mean by the way that you have to wait two weeks for them to do more stuff i mean to the best of your recollection go and write down the things that have already happened ask to set up a meeting with him prepare as much as you can with the other people in your life um in the meantime try to stay as neutral as possible towards them and look for work elsewhere um and hopefully his response is open um I I do worry that even if he gives you the benefit of the doubt, hears you out, does his best to help you, if he's not seeing them on a daily basis and how they treat you, that even if he were to say to them, you guys need to stop doing the following things, that they will find other ways to take it out on you. Um, So even if he's kind of in your corner, it is possible that short of firing them both – um, he's not able to make a huge difference in how you get treated on a daily basis at work. And if that happens, then I think, again, your best bet is to um, work elsewhere, hopefully at a slightly larger company where at least, you know, it's really hard when it's the only other two people um, in the office.
1: Yeah, it might be interesting to find out I don't know if she can find out who held her position before she did, but talking to someone else in the, who's worked in the office and knows the personalities would be interesting. For one thing, she may not be the first person to have been driven out or driven a little wild by this kind of behavior. And secondly, the, her predecessor, if that wasn't the case, might have advice on how to handle these people. I don't know if that would be possible to find out, but if it were, that would be very, very helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. Just anything that would sort of uh, help you feel at least like other people can, you know, recognize the absurdity of the position that you're in right now, because it is it's clearly not like I'm I'm having a really hard time accomplishing my tasks and my bosses are really on me about that. Right. It's like the level of insults and going through trash, which just there's no level of if someone's so incompetent that you had to do those things, they should be fired. Uh, that would not be an appropriate solution to someone doing a very bad job. So it's clearly not just like, oh, you have a lot to learn and this is the best way for them to teach you.
1: Exactly. And there, and going, you know, doing it, that sounds kind of sneaky as well, which is, is never, um, I don't know, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the people who are doing it. Uh, it. It always seems to me that if you have to be sneaky, there's some reason that you're not comfortable just um, behaving in a more open way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just like either if someone's unable to fulfill the tasks of their job, you say, like, here's what's not working and how I think we need to fix it. Or if they're just truly incapable of doing it, then you say, we have to let you go. Just telling someone you're incompetent, stay, um, is a recipe for things not improving. Like they're not trying to be good managers by any lens that you put this through.
1: Yeah. I mean, they may they may be unhappy with her performance um calling her incompetent suggests that but mm-hmm. in that case then a different kind of conversation needs to happen and maybe the boss could facilitate that again it's hard to know you know how large the offices is or what the options are but um you know name calling uh, per se is is not <laughs> is not a good management style so again it just seems like there is something clearly has to change structurally in the situation
0: yeah yeah, so good luck. I think the likeliest outcome, even if you have that conversation with um, the the head boss, that you will probably be, be looking for another job. And I hope that your next job is better than this one. And, and good luck. Keep us posted. Would you uh,
1: read us the next letter? Sure. The subject line is, I am never going to be a mother. Dear Prudence, I recently suffered my fifth mis- miscarriage in three years. After the emotional and physical toll it's taken on me, my husband wants to stop trying. I don't blame him. But because he has two children from his first marriage, I also feel very alone, facing the reality that I probably won't become a parent. It's a grief that tears me up inside. It hurts so badly that I'll think I'll, I think I'll feel this way for the rest of my life. I know it's unfair. I know it is. But I want to tell my husband it's easy for him to give up on having children. He has two wonderful kids already. And because I'd keep trying, I feel as if it's not a decision we've made together. I don't want to be so consumed by this that I burn my marriage to the ground. But I don't know how to stop feeling so devastated or how to articulate my pain to him, especially when it feels selfish. Oh, man, this one killed me. Ah, oh, So painful. Gosh. I mean, I had lots of thoughts in response to this. Um, I mean, it it seems to me that there are two different issues on the table here. One is communication with and relationship to husband. Mm -hmm. And the other is the issue of wanting a child. Um, And so I kind of felt, at least from my point of view, it made sense to separate those two issues and deal with them as two separate problems um, and to me, it just seems this this seems like a clear case where some kind of couples counseling would be incredibly helpful right. because, you know, her husband has, according as she describes, it has made a decision for her based on how he thinks having these mis you know, struggling with with reproduction is affecting her. but that's not really fair because <laughs> this is a decision she has to make too right um and my guess is that they are having a difficult time communicating about this
0: yeah yeah and, and i think there's a lot in here about what it means to have children children that you can consider your own children that you don't the difference between biological children and other ways of having children um and, and i don't want to make it sound like the letter writer has to Open up their mind to something else because what they're dealing with right now is the loss of, you know, carrying a biological child or the potential um, reality that that may never happen, and that's real and significant. Even if later in life she gets to a different place, um, either about her stepchildren or about other ways of starting a family with her husband, because um, that's real right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel that she there's so she is directing a lot of blame at herself. She's worried about burning her marriage to the ground, but her husband has made a decision for her based on how he thinks she feels. And, you know, again, I just I feel that it doesn't seem like this is quite fair. And yet she feels responsibility also for possibly imperiling the relationship. So it just feels to me like a lot of guilt and a lot of pain, which is mixed in and scrambled with general um, you know, agony over this question of having children, but it, it feels to me like the first thing that needs to be sorted out is communication with her husband, because I wonder if he understood how desperately she wants to have children and how urgently important it is to her, whether there might be other things they can try. I mean, even if it just means taking a little break and starting again Right. Or, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, she we're not. it's not clear what sort of reproductive things have been tried or anything like that. But, you know, there are just a lot of ways to go with this.
0: Right. But communication is so important. And I think that's such a good point because it's like right now the thing that she's facing is either stop forever or what they've been doing, which is, you know, five miscarriages in three years. That's, that's a lot. Um, and so those both feel like two really big, painful either-or options. Um, and I think, um, I, again, that's not to say that they might not ultimately um, still decide that they will not try again. But I think rather than saying, we're done, we're never going to try again, that's off the table, um, to say right now, as as a couple, you two need to take a break from trying in order to deal with the tremendous, tremendous pain that you're in. Um, because yes, you deserve support in this. Like, right now you say you feel like your job is to stop being devastated. And I just don't think you can ask that of yourself.
1: No. And 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 what she says about her husband being in a different position is really quite true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so again, I just it feels like there are many things that they are having trouble saying to each other, or at least that she is having trouble saying to him. Right, And I think it's really important that he, he hear those things because she's worried about burning the marriage to the ground out of, uh, it sounds to me like the fear is I'm going to exhaust my husband or run through his goodwill or just be such a handful that he can't deal with me. Right. But I actually think that the real danger is is the opposite. Hmm. by By not telling him how she feels and how important this is to her, and not making sure that he really understands how high the stakes are and the gulf that she feels from him. I think the danger is that later she blames him for all this. So he needs to really understand that, that you know, this is really, these are, this is, it doesn't get any more serious than this. Right. And they need to be in this together or down the road, they may find that
0: things become very difficult. Right. And I think that's a really good point because I I don't want the letter writer to feel like you two have to put the brakes on trying to have biological children right now so that you can go to therapy and fix everything um, and get on the exact same page. I I cannot at all guarantee that couples counseling will mean that you two will end up agreeing. It may very well be um, that you guys have to come to a very real and painful impasse where he just says, I'm not willing to go through that again. And you say, I am. Um, and you will have to deal with that as a, as a couple. But y- you don't have to solve that right now. Right now, what you need is help with your devastation and help articulating your pain to him when you want to filter it because you're worried that it's selfish.
1: Exactly. And it also seems to me that the, the letter writer's husband is concerned about her. Mm-hmm. But she, it sounds to me, would like to keep going with trying to have a child. Yeah. So, again if If his concern is for her, then he needs to understand that this is actually what she wants. So I'm not convinced that there needs to be a break at all. I just think some kind of facilitated communication would help so much,
0: yeah, and i I, I don't know to what degree it may be that he is trying to edit what he's saying is this is taking a toll on me to to be with you in that, or if he's genuinely thinking that he's looking out for her best interests and is not fully clear on where she's at. Um, but yeah, I, I, either way, I think that going to therapy together, um, agreeing to pause for at least a couple of months as you work through this together, maybe finding a support group for other women who have had miscarriages and are struggling with the question of whether or not they're going to have biological children so that you can feel less alone. Um, That might be really helpful. And that doesn't mean that you're going to either, you know, get pregnant and carry a child to term this year or that you're going to become perfectly reconciled to not doing that. Um, But that this is you. It it makes sense that you're devastated. This sounds devastating. Um, And when you're devastated, you need help and support. Um, you should not um, beat yourself up for having desires or feeling pain or anguish or try to keep it all to yourself so that you can make the people around you more, more happy. And that's not to diminish. I'm sure it's been hard on your husband, too, but this has been happening in your body. Exactly. And and the
1: emotional and physical toll of reproductive medicine is really intense. Um, and so that is probably not helping with with her state of mind. Uh, I think I think the support group idea is really excellent. I wrote a, an article years ago for the New York Times Magazine about single mothers by choice, mm-hmm. and so in in you know it, there was some kind of assisted reproduction in all of these cases, and so of course there were issues of infertility and difficulty and you know varying degrees of of challenges, and it's my sense was that talking to other women who had been through it was so incredibly helpful, partly, you know, to begin the process of also asking the question of whether a family has to happen in exactly that way, you know, whether other kinds of options might be, you know, appealing and, and you know, satisfying, um, you know, and, and so it just it feels like it, camaraderie and and some sort of um, you know, sisterhood here would really be helpful.
0: Yeah, especially too, because I think you would not feel that same guilt about um bringing someone else down, which is not what I think you are doing to your husband, but it's what I think you worry that you are doing. Um, talking to other women who have experienced this same thing, you will not feel like... There will just be a sense, even if it's not immediately comfortable, if you don't immediately like mesh with all of them beautifully, there will at least be this sense of, I don't have to explain this to her or she doesn't have to witness this from the outside. Um, She's been there too. And to have that as a sort of basis for sharing your experience um, and your fears and your feelings, I think would, I think would be really helpful to you. Absolutely.
1: And just hearing other stories, other ways that this story can go, because You know, it can it can all kinds of things can happen as as we know, Um, you know, and maybe maybe some of those things will happen for this person and maybe they need to try reproductive medicine a little bit more before that point is
0: reached. Right. And of course, I don't know if they have tried that or if they can afford that. So I, I just want to add that caveat of. That may or may not be immediately possible. But um, if it, if it is not something that you've tried, if it is something you would be able to access, I hope you can give yourself permission to talk about and contemplate that. Absolutely. Whew, and that's just big. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing here that you can address is just the part where you feel very alone. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like for you if you and your husband are ever able to come on the same page about um, what is or isn't worth it. Um, I don't know if you will ever conceive and and carry a biological child. Um, But I I do know that you can feel less alone. Absolutely. And that,
1: uh, you know, a relationship that's strong and loving will come through this. I really believe that. And I, I just have I'm such a huge believer in the power of communication. I think so often people just don't understand what the other is thinking. And a little A sort of um, a little tangle of grievances can develop um, in which, you know, everyone feels guilty. Everyone feels bad. You know, her husband may think that he's really doing the best thing for her because they're having trouble expressing to each other what they want. So I just think remarkable things can happen in that context.
0: All right. I feel like this next letter is sort of like um, the past, in some ways, the past version of this or like this is these are some people who are maybe their parents are setting them up for a future where this is the kind of conversation they have when they're visiting one another. Um, Because, man, the, the parental dynamics in this one are just really painful.
1: Yeah, exactly. The subject line is Invisible Girl. Dear Prudence, I am a college student who barely visits home. My mother keeps begging me to come home. And the rest of my family wants to know why. The reason is that I feel like the fledgling that got pushed out of the nest early while my younger brother is the baby my mother adores. He's on the autism spectrum and has difficulty in school. My mother is his fiercest protector and champion. I was the, quote, lucky one. So I was basically invisible. I felt I had to take care of my family after my father left, and my mother mostly only spoke to me to assign me chores. My brother threw tantrums, destroyed my things deliberately and maliciously, quote unquote playfully, pinched me, and threw my library books in the creek. My roommates in college dragged me to health services, where I got some professional help. The last time I went home, my brother had been suspended from school for the second time for fighting. My mother told me to clean the whole house while he played video games. I ignored her and went out to see friends instead. Before I left, my brother came up behind me and pinched me. I turned around and punched him twice in the shoulder. I told him I would do that every time he tried to touch me again. Getting home, my mother was there to yell at me and lecture me. I haven't gone home since." I talk with my mother on the phone, and I am closer to her side of the family, but I don't know what good it will be, to be honest. I still miss my mom so much sometimes I find myself crying for no reason. What should I do? Oh, man. Uh, it's
0: painful. painful. But, uh, A lot here, too. I, I, I will say one thing that I think this letter writer has done correctly, um, even though it's really painful, is say, right now I can't go home. Um, in part because of the way that your mother um, treats you and has treated you, and has not intervened when your brother has uh, hurt you, um, and also because you recognize that you can't be in a situation where you're punching him, um, that that's not that's not um, the right response. That's not going to be safe for him. That's not going to um, be safe for you. That's not the future that you want for your life. So I just want to say, you know, good on you for realizing. I can't be here. And good on you
1: for following your roommate's advice and possibly dragging um, and going to health services because that is also an incredibly positive step.
0: Yeah, and and I wish that that just made things feel better. It, it, you know, I I think implicit in this letter is that sort of sense of like, yeah, that sort of helped, but I still cry all the time. Um, And I I just that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I wish, I wish that it didn't, but. This is a situation where it makes sense that you're crying a lot. This is very, very sad. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong right now. It just means that you're grieving the loss of um, feeling like my mom's going to look out for me.
1: I mean, it seems to me, I mean, first of all, I think this is, a, a dynamic that ha- that emerges very often in families where one sibling has some kind of health issue, either mental or physical, that requires a lot of attention from the parents. And it, it sounds like this is a household without a father. So that, you know, this is a mother who's got a lot on her plate, too. But one thing that really comes through to me is the letter writer is crying and missing her mom. And in the second sentence of the letter, my mom keeps begging me to come home, So there's a lot of love and desire for togetherness, both on the side of the letter writer and on the side of her mother, which I think is really positive. And the question is, how can that be parlayed into a more, a deeper understanding of each other?
0: Right, because um, I I think you're right that there's there are feelings of affection there. But one thing that's not being translated into is is the mom kind of looking out for her. Um, and also uh, an ability to honestly communicate what's going on. Um, Part of what I'm concerned about is, like, when the mother keeps begging this letter writer to come home, is it because she wants to see her, or is it because she wants um, someone to clean the whole house? Um, You know, I, I, I don't know to what extent that that's always the dynamic, but, you know, she does say that, Um, After my father left, my mother mostly only spoke to me to assign me chores. So I don't know that this is a sort of case of I want you home because I miss talking to you and having a relationship so much as um, you are my unpaid assistant and I don't have the resources I need to care for my son um, and I need you to do those services, Um, which again, I, I can really appreciate that the mom is in a really difficult situation but that does not mean that the letter writer's job is to um, just be there to be a sort of um, uh, housekeeper um, who doesn't have needs or feelings. And so as long as those are the conditions under which the mother wants her to visit, I think she needs to to say to her mom, you know, when I'm home, and this has been true ever since dad left, um, you assign me chores. Um, and you pay all of this attention to my brother. And I, I understand that he has a lot of needs that are not easy to fulfill. Um, and that that's been really hard on you. But that's been really hard on me too. Um, and especially when I don't feel physically safe uh, around him. And I know that I can't rely on you um, for help with that. That's not a position I can put myself in. Um, that I think that's a really fair line to draw. Um, and to say, you know, as long as, you know, I, I, I did not, I don't want to I don't want to be in a relationship where I I tell my brother I'm going to hit him. Like, that's not how I want to behave. That's not how I want to treat him or anyone. And so I can't safely be in this house as long as that's going to be the dynamic. Um, And to have that conversation with your mother honestly. Um, And not to say, you know you're just a lousy mom, you're just doing this for fun. I know that your mom is going through a lot, but to just say, that's a limit that I have to have. So if you want to have phone calls or if you want to meet for lunch um, or run an errand together outside of the house, I might be available for that. But as for visiting home, that's off the table.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing that um, a therapist told me once that I thought that has really stayed with me is that it can be very, that it's... there's a a difference between accusing someone of something and telling them how you feel. Mm-hmm. And one way to really avoid raising people's hackles and defensiveness, because it's very hard to hear, you know, that, someone, that, that you're not a good mother, for example, mm-hmm. um, is to focus on how you feel rather than what the other person is doing to make you feel that way. So I'm guessing that if her mother hears that she feels unloved, unappreciated, and unsafe. That that is really, you know, that's a, that's a kind of arresting thing for a mother to hear, but to try to make the emphasis on the way that she feels rather than what the mother is doing wrong.
0: Yeah, I I I, I do understand that. I feel like the reason that I'm a little bit more on the side of of wanting to talk about the specifics is just because They are very specific actions. I actually had to edit this letter down a little bit, but the letter writer had initially said when I was uh, about 13 or 14, I actually kept a journal, like documenting, like in our first letter, of everything my mother said to me the whole week. Um, She said, I love you once, and everything else was telling me a chore to perform. Um, So it's just really clearly been a profound dynamic for a really long time. And I do think there may be some value in saying um again maybe maybe that's not an anecdote to share with her mother right now but maybe maybe it's something that she wants to think about saying which is just that um, these are the only things that you say to me um and so i you know i'm not saying that you don't love me or that you're not over um you know overstretched and under-resourced but this is what it looks like when i'm at home and even though i love you and i miss you you know why would i want to be in a house where that's you know um, where my brother destroys my things, he pinches me, and my mother only tells me what to clean. Like, why would I want that? Um, and to be really honest about that, because it sounds like there's been um, some some minimizing, understandably, on the letter writer's part. And unless she can honestly say, here is why I do not visit home and why I will not visit home probably for a while, um, unless the situation changes dramatically. Um is because that's just what's that's real. That's reality. Does that make sense? I I don't I don't think she should say, like, here's everything you've ever done wrong either. Um, But I do think it might be helpful to name a dynamic.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, get that extra bit of information is is useful. I mean, it makes me see how deeply entrenched this pattern is. Yeah, sorry, I should have kept it. Um, But I I, I guess I, I guess what I'm really saying is that the more the letter writer can focus on things on her feelings, I Mm -hmm. love you, I miss you, I want us to be a whole family. Uh, You know, I guess I just, but I feel these other ways. And I'm not saying, I mean, clearly there's behavior that needs to be talked about. I mean, the brother's, um, you know, behavior toward her clearly has to stop. Um, But I guess I would just, you know, if the goal is to create, hopefully, Um, a better relationship in the future, the more she can focus on her own feelings, I think the better chance she'll have of getting her mother out of a defensive posture and into a listening posture.
0: Yeah. Uh, So I think the one thing that I really want to address, the letter writer had said, which is just, I don't know what good it will do, to be honest. And I totally get that in the sense of, I can't promise you that that means anything will change. I can't promise you that your mother will agree with you. Uh, she may very well come back with, but your brother has, you know, these following needs and I've always done the best I can and it's not really that bad or, you know, any of those things may happen. Um, but I think you will at least feel less of a burden like it's my job simply to absorb all of these things and then make life easier for my mother. Um, because it does seem like in a lot of ways that's been how you have Seeing yourself in the family as somebody whose job it is to make your mom's life easier, um, and that's not your job. You're her kid. Um, so I think it will. I think it will do good if, if for no other reason than you will feel like you are not carrying around this big, overwhelming secret and having to come up with an excuse or a deflection um, when when she asks you why you're not coming home. Um, and and again, just to. Just to address it again, I'm very glad that you decided you can't go home again, um, and I also understand that there's been a lot of ways in which your brother has treated you um, in ways that do not make it safe for you to be around him. So I don't want any way to say um, that those things aren't real and important, um, but I also just you know really really want you to know that part of this is just also about his safety. Like he's operating um, under a set of circumstances that are really different from yours, um, and. Just as it's not your job to be um, a, a housekeeper for him to make his life great, it's also still not okay um, to, to hurt him back because he has hurt you. Um, so um, just, just to really make sure that that is something that you're as aware of as you are about all these other dynamics, which is just um, it's not safe for him if you feel like the only way you can exist in the same house with him is if you have a policy of when you touch me, I hit you. Um, I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for him.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And I also think when talking to her mother, you know, I think honesty is always, you know, as long as it's done with kindness, Mm -hmm. is always a good thing, pretty much. Uh, Rare that things go wrong because of that. Um, but I also think it it may not have immediate impact. I mean, the mother may initially react defensively right she may be angry right um you know she has a she has a a perspective from which you know this is you know this is what needs to be done, so help me do it but i think down the road you know sometimes people hear more than you think they're hearing hmm. um and i and it may be that this is something that is going to take a while to to get sorted out but it is so important that 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 she do her mother the service of explaining why she doesn't want to come home
0: yeah yeah and even if that does not immediately result in a great deal of change um you know you will at least not feel like you have to lie to her every time you guys talk on the phone um and that will be helpful as you continue to access like mental health services on campus and figure out, you know, where will I live uh, over the summers or after I graduate since home's not an option for me. Um, and I hope that eventually you are able to develop a different kind of relationship with your mother. Um, it, it may simply be that with your brother, um, civil distance is the most that you can hope for. I don't know what, what repair there might look like. Um, but you know, hopefully you will be able to stay in your mother's life in some way. Um, But right now, what you need um, is distance, space, and time and safety. And you can't get that at home. Um, And the only way you can start to get that for yourself um, is if you take really good care of yourself and ask for help and support from the services available to you on campus and from your friends.
1: Yeah. And congratulations on on finding friends who, you know, have your best interest in mind. And mental health services that are giving you some clarity. I mean that's people sometimes wait, you know, decades to find those things. So I feel like the letter writer has some very good instincts and is reaping the rewards of those, which is really wonderful.
0: Yeah, I'm really really glad you have friends who are looking out for you like that. That is just I'm so happy to hear that and um I hope you can just lean on them um in this and and just yeah, when you cry, that makes a lot of sense. Be kind to yourself, let yourself cry talk to a friend or a therapist about it. Um, That does not mean that you're doing anything wrong. That just means that you're grieving um, the pain of your current reality. Yeah. Man, I don't know if we landed at dreamy happiness today, but I do feel like we got somewhere kind of lovely and with at least some possibility for something different. And that, I think, is is meaningful. Absolutely. And the hope is that
1: the love that exists amidst these conflicts and these entangled and enmeshed histories can, can ultimately rise to the surface and, and carry the day, but it can take a while.
0: Yeah. Oh, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on this show. I can see why the city of New York loves you. Aw, um, <laughs> that's so sweet. just wonderful, and I, I hope that um, you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. I,
1: I enjoyed this so much. I, I I feel like, well, wait, can't we do some more letters? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean,
0: maybe this will inspire you to. Uh, I don't know, heal a stranger's life uh, <sighs> as you as you walk out. Somebody else may just be in need of uh, hope, hope, or clarity, or support, and you will be able to fix their problems. Nothing would make me happier. And maybe someday you can come back on the show, and I can just pepper you with even more questions, and they'll all be about like, you know. Coworkers and dogs. No more fraught family stuff. Just some real. <laughs> it's a standing good...
1: offer. It's a standing offer. I would do it any time.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, come back soon. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear that's 3327, And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.